My name is Will Bushman. I am the student ministry director here, and we continue in our story, our series that he gave us stories. All right, we've been working through this the past couple of weeks about Jesus in his time on earth that he told parables. All right, he told us these stories, and I've sat mostly there for this. So as I've been doing that, I've just been thinking about how powerful stories really are. I mean, think about your favorite story right now, like your favorite one of all time. It could be a movie, it can be a book, it can be a TV script, a poem, short story, whatever you want. I mean, why do you love it? Right? Maybe it takes you to a place you could possibly never go, right? a fictional land that, that you can just enjoy. Maybe it takes you back in time to relive a legendary moment of history and feels like you're actually there. Maybe when you open up your favorite book, a, a feeling of joy and just peace comes upon you that you can't find anywhere else except for that book. And so stories have this way of drawing us in. And that's the beauty and the genius of Jesus as a communicator that we've seen through these stories. It's what topics does he choose to illustrate to us through story. And think about the last couple of weeks. We've worked through forgiveness. Jesus taught us through a story. Hey, what do we do with all of this stuff that we've been given on this earth? Hey, how do we respond to what Jesus says to us? What kind of life are we building? Right? What kind of foundation are we building our life, our family, everything on? We've talked about money two weeks in a row through story. We've talked about the age-old problem of pride in us. And all of these topics are as sensitive and intrinsic to our lives as anything could possibly be. So Jesus comes to us with stories to say, okay, this is something that we as people need to work through. So why does Jesus use stories? Why does he choose those topics? Is he trying to, you know, bait and switch method? You know, draw us into something, a place we don't want to go? Is he just trying to hide the story and the purpose till the very end? And I don't think any of that's true. I think the beauty of story for all of us is that we allow it to do what it desires to do, not what we want it to do. Think about it. A book, may, maybe the plot's a little slow for you, but you wait till the end to figure it out. Maybe as you're reading through a story that the twists and the turns take you to a shocking and surprising place that you would have never thought was going to happen. But the author is who is in charge. We are passengers on the train of a story, not the conductor. You don't walk into a movie theater, sit down, watch the first five minutes, and walk out. Right? I did that once, if I'm honest. It was the new Les Mis, and I did not know that they would sing every word in the script. Not my thing. But 99% of the time, we sit there, right? We hear the story, and we save our commentary till afterwards. We allow the story to maybe change our perceptions, right? So Jesus is taking difficult conversational topics throughout this series, and he's coming to us in an approachable way through story. He gives us illustrations about what he's teaching to us. This morning we come to a parable in Matthew 25 called the parable of the ten virgins. And we'll, we'll get to that, don't worry. But the purpose of this illustration that Jesus uses through story is what he taught his disciples back in Matthew 24. So Jesus, at this point in the Gospels, right, he's preparing his disciples that he's going to die on a cross, that he's going to be resurrected, and that he's going to ascend back up to heaven. So what are they going to do while he's gone? And Jesus in Matthew 24 comes to his disciples and he's teaching them about the end of the world like the literal end of the world, when all of this will go away. He's talking to them about his second coming to judge the living and the dead. And they always say you shouldn't talk about religion or politics at Thanksgiving dinner with your family. Well, I think we should add the end of the world to that list as well. It's not a topic we enjoy talking about, and those people who do enjoy it, enjoy it far too much for any of us to care. 
But just so we have some context for our parable today, here are the highlights from Matthew 24 that takes place right before a parable. Jesus teaches his disciples this about the end of the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. There will be famines and earthquakes. Jesus relates the end times to a woman who's in labor who's experiencing birth pains. As time grows closer to delivery, the contractions get more intense, they get stronger. Right? Jesus speaks of tribulation and lawlessness. He says many will walk away from faith. He says the love of many will grow cold. He describes it as the days of Noah's were back in Genesis. That the flood is coming and that the people of the world are too distracted by the things they are in in this world that they don't even see the flood coming. But Matthew 24, Jesus teaches three clear things to his disciples. The first one is that he, Jesus, is going to personally return to this earth one day. The second thing he teaches is that only God the Father knows exactly when. And lastly, and the most important thing for us today, is that our job as his people on this earth are to be watchful and to persevere until he returns. And so now Jesus will tell this parable to his disciples to illustrate these last things. Our parable picks up in Matthew 25, starting in verse 1. Jesus says this, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. We have to pause right there because you're already like, okay, Jesus, ten virgins, the bridegroom, and lamps. Where exactly are we going with this? In order to understand this, we have to understand what the disciples would have known. Right? We have to understand what, what a wedding looked like in the first century. Right? Not something that we're accustomed to, but the disciples would have understood this. And Jesus is going to use a wedding ceremony to show us and to illustrate to us what the last days will look like. So here's how a first century wedding went down. It all started with a betrothal, right? A bridegroom went to the bride's father that he wanted to marry, and he paid her him a dowry for it, right? And this started the betrothal period, right? Which is kind of like a modern-day engagement period. But it was much more serious, right? You couldn't just break up. Betrothal actually required like kind of like divorce-like proceedings. So a man would enter into this with a woman, the bridegroom and the future bride, right? But then the bride would stay with her parents for that betrothal period. Right? It could have been a year, it could have been several years, because the bridegroom now would leave. Right? He would go and prepare a place for their future family. Right? He, he would build an additional suite onto his parents' house, or he would build his own house, but he would be gone for a while. And the bride would be waiting every day. Right? Because she didn't know when the bridegroom was going to return. Right? It was up to his discretion on when to come back, when the job was finished, preparing a place for her, he would return for. Her. Just think about what you would feel as that woman. Right, waiting every single day. Just waiting for that one day that you know is coming, but you're not exactly sure when, of when your bridegroom will return, when the love of your life will come and get you. Right? She had to do the normal things of life, right? If this is taking a year or several years, she's not just gonna sit waiting out the window, like, okay, is he coming? You know, when is he coming? Right? So he had to do the normal things of life. Right? She had to continue to live her life, but you can only imagine that every day when she woke up, she would ask herself, is this the day? And every night when she laid her head down on the pillow, she's like, maybe it's going to be tomorrow. The anticipation would have grown as days and weeks would pass by. And this whole time during this betrothal period, she would have what in modern terms is like bridesmaids with her. And that's what the 10 virgins is going to illustrate for us. That is that group of women. And so the day would finally come. The bridegroom would finally return. And you can imagine, like, the town's pretty jacked up for this. They've been waiting as well. Like, we're finally going to have the celebration that we have waited for. So as he gets to the outskirts of town, I'm sure word would have been passed along and passed along, and she would finally be ready for her bridegroom to come 
and meet her. And the whole group, the, the bridesmaids at the ten virgins in our story, they're excited too because they know that they've waited for this day as well. They know that they have a responsibility to make this day as beautiful as possible for the bride. So what would take place then is as the bridegroom returned, a small ceremony would take place at the bride's parents' house. But then they would travel to the bridegroom's house, right? You know, a, a lot of places here where the celebration and the feast would take place. And here was the bridesmaid's responsibility. They were supposed to have lamps or most likely torches in this case. Because what would happen is when the ceremony was finally over, they would run into the bride's family's house and they would take the fire and they would stick their torch in to light the flame because you don't want to be that one bridesmaid who like has her flint out and is kind of just working on the bride's like. So they would run inside, they would get the torch lit, and then here's what they would do. It's, it's this beautiful picture, so really uh, imagine this. They would take the bride, they would put her on a chair, right? And they would lift her up. And then the other bridesmaids would surround her with their torches lifted high as they traveled to her new home to celebrate her wedding. And think about that picture. The bride, high and lifted up. She's shining in the light of the torches. Her bridegroom can see her in all of her beauty. It's a beautiful picture. And then they would make their way to the celebratory feast. So now we can reverse a little bit and get back to this verse. Now that you know a little bit about first century weddings, let's get back into the parable. So again, starting in Matthew 25, verse 1, Jesus says, Then, knowing exactly what he just said about the second coming in chapter 24, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who again function as modern-day bridesmaids who took their lamps, their, their torches, as I will say it, and went to meet the bridegroom because he's finally returned. But this is a parable. Jesus is not just telling a cool story about a wedding. Jesus has a purpose and an intent for us that's more than just words on a page. He's trying to teach us about the end of time when he will return. And think about it. Jesus chooses a wedding ceremony to illustrate this topic. He could have chose a hundred of other things. He could have been a judge. He could have been a boss. And we could have been his employees. But instead, Jesus chooses a day of love and celebration to commemorate the last day. Right? And it fits the biblical storyline. Think about who Jesus is in this story. Who symbolizes Jesus? It's the bridegroom. Right? It's the bridegroom. Jesus came. Right? He left heaven and came to earth. Right? And he came for his bride. He came for the church. And Jesus paid a dowry. It wasn't money. It wasn't silver. It wasn't gold. Jesus paid a dowry for us with his own flesh and blood. Right, the dowry for us was paid on the cross. And then Jesus died on the cross, and you know, he went to the tomb three days later, he resurrected. I'm fast forwarding through this part of the story. But then he ascended. Right? And Jesus has been gone for a little over 2,000 years, if my math is right. right. And this whole time, Jesus has been preparing a place for you and I for his church. And that's what the ten virgins signify in this passage. So as we read this passage, the ten virgins are you and I. It's a visible church. It's the people that sit in these chairs. It's the people that sit in pews all across the world. It's the people in Bible studies. It's people like you and I. right? But the parable takes an abrupt turn, and and Jesus gets into it in verse 2 in Matthew 25. Right off the bat, Jesus says five of them, you know, the ten ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. All right, kind of a quick twist to a wedding ceremony, calling the bride's friends and, and attendants. Five were foolish. And five were wise. In our world, you know, we, we, we love data and we love numbers. We love to number crunch. But don't take that division too seriously. Right? Jesus is saying some people in the church are foolish. And some people in the church 
are wise. He's not, you know, looking at the population of church. He's saying, okay, every other one, e, meeny, money, mo, and he's separating us like that. Right? He's not like my first professor of my first accounting class that I sat down at FSU. And she said, hey, look to your left. Look to your right. One of you will not be an accounting major at the end of this semester. And lucky for the people who sat next to me that day, because I was not an accounting major at the end of that. So my professor's math was right. It was exact. It was purposeful. But, but Jesus isn't trying to do anything specific like that. And Jesus right away gives us exactly why five were foolish and five were wise. Because verse 3, he says, For when the foolish took their lamps, right, these necessary things, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And think about this. All ten virgins are in the right place at the right time. Right? All ten of them have been by the bride's side this whole time. They've been doing their job. They've been doing their responsibilities. But the thing that separates these two groups, and the only thing that separates them, is the wise had oil, and the foolish had no oil. So think about that. The foolish with no oil, their torches were useless. Right? They've waited all of this time, and the big moment finally came. They stuck their torch, you know, just, you know, probably would have just been a stick with some linen wrapped around it that you needed oil for. So they would stick it into the fire, and all of a sudden, poof, the linen would be gone. So all they would have for this procession is a smoldering stick. The bride's like, no, I don't want you as part of my ceremony. I don't want you as part of my procession. The bridegroom would be like, hey, I think we should get rid of those ones. Whereas the wise virgins were ready. They had their torches. They, they had them all oiled up. They had enough oil, so when they stuck it in on their journey, their lights would shine bright. They had light to adorn the bride with. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the oil for us symbolizes faith. Think about this. Jesus is dividing two groups of people at the end times. And he's using the story of ten virgins and lamps and fire. And what he's saying is, It's a faith that matters in the end. A faith that believes and trusts in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross above all else. A faith that shines brightly on this earth. A faith that can be ignited like a flame when it hits the fire. It's a faith that defines the life we live, not letting the world and the culture around us define our faith. It's a faith that could say, oh Jesus, I am a wretched sinner in need and deserving of nothing, but you give me everything. It's a faith that knows that I can't earn it or I can't deserve it, but he freely gives it to us. It's a faith that's kept alive by the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And the foolish don't have a faith like that in this story. On the outside, they look the part. Right? They're there. They've got their lamp. They have their torch. Everybody on the outside can see But in the moment they need it, they don't have the oil. They go through the motions, but they lack the faith. And Jesus continues in verse 5. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So the bridegroom, just like Jesus in this parable, was delayed. Right? He takes his time getting back there. Right? And sleep is not a derogatory thing. Jesus is not chastising them for sleeping. Right? What the sleep symbolizes is it's a normal function of life. You and I have to sleep or eventually we're going to die. Right, the normal activities of life. For Jesus is saying to us, like, in my delay, right, I'm, I'm coming back, but not yet. So while you're on this earth, continue with the normal activities of life. He's saying, oh, I gave you a work to do on this earth. You, you work hard, and then you rest. And then if I'm not back yet, you, you work hard again, and then you rest, and you keep on working and resting and watching. 
In verse 6, he continues, but at midnight there was a cry. The day is finally here. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and expectedly, unexpectedly, in the middle of the night, the bridegroom returns. Right? They knew this was going to happen, and they were prepared for it. So all ten of them, remember, get up, and they're like, okay, this is the day we're finally here. They all look the same on the outside. But for five of them, they're only going through the motions because verse 8 says, And the foolish said to the wise, at the biggest moment of all of this, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. The foolish realized they have a major problem right in this moment. Everything is good on the outside, but on the inside, they're missing the essential, essential ingredient for fire. They needed the oil. And they desperately ask, you know, one last ditch effort. Maybe I can have some of their oil. And you think for the wise, hey, Jesus, these are the wise people. They don't seem very generous or charitable in this moment. What would the harm be if they all crowdsourced a little bit of their oil and gave it to the other five? Right? But what is this story symbolizing? And this is the sober warning for us today that Jesus gave to the disciples and now to us this morning. It doesn't matter if we go through all the right motions. It doesn't matter what our life looks like on the outside if we lack the essential ingredient of faith. What matters in the end, and we're talking about the literal end of the world, is do we have a personal faith in Jesus Christ? And by the wise saying, hey, you can't have mine. What's Jesus saying to us? He's saying, hey, we can't have faith for each other as much as we would want to. I can't give my future children my faith one day. I can't go around and say, okay, I lived a life of obedience to Jesus, but you didn't, so at the end, you can have some of mine. I can't live out your inner spiritual life for you. In the end, me, I can't say, Jesus, my pastor, that guy, he had a lot of faith. Can he just give me some of his? It seemed like he had enough. In the end, we can't say, Jesus, well, I sat every single Sunday for decades in the seats of Rio Vista Church. Does that count for nothing? Jesus, as I looked around on Sunday morning, I saw a lot of people with a faith that shined bright like a torch in the middle of the night. They really had faith. Can't I just borrow some of theirs? And it's a heartbreaking part of the story. Because you realize these five foolish virgins wasted their time. They wasted their time by just going through the motions and in the end, not having any oil, not having any faith of their own. So they make a last-ditch effort to try and find some. Verse 10 says, And while they were going to buy the oil that they lacked, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready, the wise virgins, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The wise, the watchful, the oil-filled, the faith-filled, were allowed to enter the celebration. The day they waited for, they were finally allowed in. And verse 11 Afterward, the other virgins, the foolish ones who had no oil, came also. And they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Right? The most terrifying words any of us can hear on that last day is exactly that. Where Jesus looks at us and he says, I never knew you. Right, and know here is it's an experiential thing. 
It's not just I know a lot about Jesus. It's not I sat in the seats and I listened. It's an experiential know that can only come through a personal relationship. Jesus, in the end, is saying, hey, you were part of the church. You were one of the ten virgins. You had the lamp. You had the religion. You had the attendance record. You had everything on the outside, but you didn't take advantage and purpose of what was on the inside. You even carried the lamp around to your workplace, to your office, and others would have seen that lamp, and they would have said, he's got it. But the Jesus who sees past all of that, the eternal son of God who everything was created for and to, sees through all of that, and he sees through to our hearts. And for those in the end who have no faith, and to many, he's going to say, I never knew you. But there's good news for us as we think through all of this. The truth is you and I, on that last day when Jesus returns, do not have to hear, I never knew you. We don't. And we don't have to be scared of last coming, but we can be in anticipation. We can wait for it. We can be excited for it because we can be like the five wise virgins. Just think about Jesus, our, our true bridegroom. What did he come to do for us? He came to bring us the faith that we lack. He looked at a people who had lamps without oil, and he said they can't do it by themselves. They can't muster up this faith. that They can't work on it. They can't be good enough to get it. So he said, I'm going to come to them. That I'm going to pay a dowry by, by being hung on a cross, the eternal son of God, hung on a cross and died so that you and I can have faith. And he says, here's what you have to do. You have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. That he's the crucified, he's the resurrected, he's the ascended Savior, and you will be saved. Right? We just sang a song, Blessed Assurance. We can sing that because we can be confident of this reality. Right? We don't have to have imposter syndrome as we sing that. We can say, Jesus, I, I really do have faith in you. It's not because of me. It's not because of anything I've done, but it's purely because of your work on the cross and your resurrection. And if this parable is an illustration of the second coming, Jesus gives us a, a, another story, another image in, in the book of Revelation. Right? He gives us this image of, okay, if Jesus is delayed and he's not coming back, we don't know, he, he will though, what is he doing in the meantime? Well, in Revelation 3, it says this. It says, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. If we hear his voice and open the door, then he will come in and eat with us and we will eat with him. So right now, today, Jesus is on the other side of that door. He's not the one shutting the door. That's actually us. Right now, he's standing at the door of our hearts and he's knocking. He's saying, please let me in. Let me in so I can eat with you and have a relationship with you. He wants to give us the faith and the grace and the mercy that he has already paid for. So open that door. Right? Don't wait till tomorrow or the next day because there will come a day when that door is shut. But right now, Jesus is knocking. So Jesus, after this parable, he leaves the disciples and us with one command in light of this parable. He says in verse 13, he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Again, watching. Jesus is not saying, okay, get, get out your lawn chair. You know, go sit outside. Just stare up at the sky until I come back. He's not saying that. We're not on a UFO. Watch. He says, watch here means to be spiritually awake. 
He's saying, be sure that you're awake to the things the Spirit is doing in you. Be alive and alert to Jesus and the Holy Spirit in your life. He's saying, do everything in your power, everything that I've given you to know me more, to trust me more, to love me more. Use all of those things. That's what watching looks like. It looks like be people who are being spiritually awake. Because the truth this morning, if we put our faith in, if we put our trust, if we put our hope, if we put our everything, while we're on this earth, we're going to be like those torches on a dark night. I mean, look at the state of our world. How could we not? And he's giving us that ability. And when he returns, if we have faith, if we stay watchful, right, we're not going to hear, I never knew you. We're not. Instead, we'll hear this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's our hope in this life and the next, that we wholly belong to Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that we can have this this morning. So a couple of questions just for us to think on as we close. Question number one, does Jesus know you? That's what everything in this life is defined by. That's the only thing that matters in the end. In the end, does Jesus know you and can you confidently say yes? Question two, are you actively watching for Jesus' second coming? Are are you in his word? Are are you in prayer? Are you actively seeking Jesus? I want to trust you more today, and I want to trust you more the next day, and I want to love you more, and I want to see you more, and I want to see you as my true bridegroom whom I love. So take advantage of it today. Open the door to this relationship with Jesus. Just like we say every week, hey, there's people down here at the front, especially after a sermon like this. If you have any questions, if you want to open that door to Jesus today, let's do it. Let's not wait. So we'd love to talk with you at the end. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue in worship. Our Father and our God, uh, Lord, we just thank you um, for the sober warnings you give us in this life. Lord, we're people who are easily distracted. We're people who lose focus. We chase the shiny golden things of this life and and we need to refocus on you so lord we just thank you for your word we just thank you that you're god who loves us enough to give us your word so we don't have to wonder what you're thinking we don't have to wonder what we're doing here but lord i just ask for all of us lord would you just give us faith the faith that you died for would we live in lord if there's anyone here that 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 is wondering if they have oil, but would your spirit just convict them, God? Would they know that you're a God who stands at the door waiting for them today? That you want to open it to them, that you want to give them life in you. So Lord, we just ask for boldness in that. Lord, we pray for those of us who've just fallen asleep, that are in your church, that know we have that faith. God, would you just reawaken our hearts? Would you make us like watchmen in the night waiting for your return? Would you give us an active missional life that says, I love Jesus above all else? Jesus, we just thank you that we can live in that grace, that we can sing this blessed assurance that, that, that Jesus is mine, all because of what you've done for us. Just thank you for who you are in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.